Today on episode 165 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, teaching lessons from course evaluations from Bonnie Stahoviak. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Well, hello to everyone. This is Dave Stahoviak, and I am having the privilege of getting to speak with someone you've probably heard a bunch on the show, Bonnie Stahoviak. But we're turning the tables today, right, Bonnie? We are. Speaking of listening, I've heard from a couple of listeners who have listened to every single episode of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. One guy told me he thought it was the Bonnie and Dave show in the beginning because the first (laughs) five episodes are just the two of us. So you sound familiar to that guy, but to the rest of them, you might be a person they haven't heard as much from lately. It is always fun to come back. And as I listen to every episode of this show, I'm Every time I learn such new things, new ways to look at things. I mean, the recent episodes you did on Wikipedia and using YouTube videos and all of the just fun ways of utilizing technology in the classroom. Uh, it's just, I, I take away something each time from it. It's fun. But today we're going to turn the tables on you a bit. And I know one of the things that you think about a lot, of course, is the feedback that you get from students and how you can utilize that feedback effectively. And there's also been... A number of episodes you've had in the past where you've talked about the way to uh, navigate, handle, respond to course evaluations, and also some of the best practices around that. And it's changed your thinking on how you handle these. And so I know one of the things you're interested in doing is going through and actually making this really, uh, what's the word, Uh, tangible, specific, relatable to to exactly what you've been receiving as far as feedback. So I think we're going to look at some of the feedback you've received from evaluations this past semester and just talk through what are some of the what are some of the ways you're processing that and handling that especially in the context of what you've learned hosting the show over the last couple of years i wanted to mention that there's an excellent episode with betsy berry and she goes into the research on core course evaluations and i'm going to link to that in the show notes which will be at teaching and higher ed.com slash 165 because if what you're looking for is research on them is there bias are they good measures she does a phenomenal job and there's a lot of links in that episodes as well so this is much more of a reflective episode because yes we can read all the research <laughs> in the world that's out there, but they're talking about us and they're talking about our teaching and they're talking about things that if you're going to try to do well, you're going to be vulnerable in pursuing. And we thought we'd take the risk and do something a little bit more personal on this show. So before we get into a lot of the details, I'm curious on a 30,000 foot level, how do you handle evaluations as far as your own process and just the process of how your university handles it too? One of the things that I do from a practical standpoint is I have a place for them. My evaluations are now done electronically, although they were not always done that way. So sometimes I get a paper copy and then I'd scan them. But there is a place that all of my course evaluations are located, at least by institution. I teach occasionally as an adjunct. But I've got, you know, at my main institution, I have one folder where I can go to and get 
all of my evaluations for one, from one place. And that makes it really easy then if you're ever trying to go up for tenure or promotion, or if any of you are looking to apply to teach somewhere else, then you've got all the information you need as far as course evaluations, because it's very likely you'll be asked for them in either of those processes. And what are some of the techniques that you've found helpful or useful in perhaps that you've learned from this show or you've taken and utilized, but I'm also curious just over time and teaching now for 10, 11 years full-time, what techniques have you found that have been helpful? Well, there's a couple of things in terms of just what's not helpful. <laughs> we start there. All right. <laughs> what's not helpful is to just see that the email came in with the course evaluations and, and you know, if perhaps this is if I blocked out time to look at email for an hour or whatever, I'm in the mode of processing email it's not helpful for me to just open those up right when they come in and be expected to process them, actually glean anything useful from them. And then I'm off with my day. So I I have to separate it. I've, I put them in the place that, that I've designated for them. I try to pick the quote unquote right time to review them. I have to be in a good space to do this. And I will say, I should I should say from the get-go, I get very good course evaluations. And I'm not saying that to be egotistical. I'm saying that because despite the fact that I get very good course evaluations, there can be one comment that will just sit with me and I'll grieve over it. You know what I mean? Like I'll, mm-hmm. I'll um, they're hard for me. They're really, really hard for me, despite the fact that time and time again, I mean, they're just, I receive wonderful feedback from students. So it's, it's, um, I have to be in the right place to do it. And I actually have two sort of phases that I go through. One is a quick dive, which would be just so at a separate time, not, not just when the email comes in or, or they'll say, Oh, your course evaluations are now available in your learning management system. Cause that's where ours are now placed. And then, so I, I just download them, put them away. And then I'll have the quick dive of like, go in, skim it. Are there any huge major things? And then just kind of sit on it. And then maybe a week or two later, schedule some time to really think through now what? So I actually have two times that, that I read them. There's the quick glance and then there's the, okay, here's, here's the actual. When you do the quick dive, is that literally when the email comes in or have you set aside time to do a, a quick dive as well? It depends on what space I'm in when I'm checking my email, mm-hmm. when I know that they're available. Yeah. And how disciplined I'm being too. Cause we, we want to take a peek, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you do a quick dive and then there's a second time. This is the part that I definitely have not done before, but you take that, that second time. Tell me more about what you do during that that time where you block off to go and sure. do the deep dive. Well, I think the first time that I read them, that it's emotional. It's personal. It feels personal. It shouldn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wish I wasn't like that. that would be, it seems like I would be a better person if it wasn't personal, but but it is. So then, then the second time I'm trying to be more objective about it. What does this feedback actually say? As opposed to, you know, what, what does it say about you as a person and your worth? You know what I mean? Like that, like that just helps me do it by having a little bit more space there. So I look at it both from a qualitative and a quantitative standpoint. I tend to find more value personally in the qualitative because one of the things I believe that Betsy said was that there's not so much difference between the quantitative results between this is not her wording, but <laughs> this is my memory of like the good ones versus the not so good ones. There's not that much of a difference quantitatively speaking. And since I tend to get pretty good evaluations anyway, I don't, I can't see that much. And what sometimes I'll see, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in these evaluations would be like 95% of people strongly agree. And then there's one person neutral. 
And you know how this goes. What am I thinking about? The 95% of the people who said strongly agree or the one person who said neutral. What does that mean? What is it like? What is that? And that's why, by the way, I think separating it out helps. And then having more of an objective look. Okay, what what do we want to do? What, what do we want to take away? I wanted to mention my first manager when I graduated from college, a man by the name of Kent North, wonderful, wonderful leader. I'm so glad to have gotten to worked in under his leadership for a year, my first, first, first year of working professionally. And I'll never forget, because I, I taught computer classes. And I taught a group of 24 people, and there were these two women that were so incredibly rude. And they talked the entire class and were just, and this is back in the day when you actually taught 24 people Microsoft Word where people clicked along with you. Now click on the phone and they were not clicking along. And they both gave me straight fives and I was so used to getting straight tens. They were, they were, they used to call them smile sheets. You know, they were not, Mm -hmm. not very meaningful evaluations. And I will never forget, I went to his office and I don't think I was crying because I don't think I cried. I don't remember ever crying, but I sure felt like crying. You know what I mean? I, he, he, he must have known that I was upset. And he, he had me actually physically hold these two evaluations in my hand. They are, they're sitting on top of my hands. And he says, I want you to tell me, is there anything worthwhile you can glean from this feedback? Is this helpful to you? And I'm holding them in my hands and no, there's nothing helpful about this feedback and he took the two pieces of paper together and he lifted them up and he went and into the trash can they went which by the way was a complete not what you're supposed to do because I was like all the evaluations went into a locked box at the front of the class it was like very taboo for him to have done that and symbolically Mm -hmm. I've carried it with me all the time and I just picture myself like holding it in my hand. Is, is there anything worthwhile you can glean from this to make you a better teacher? No, there is not. And then just that, the power of, of that was very, because I, I know that early in my career, I taught a computer training. How did I get evaluated? Very much on, could I stay engaged and energetic for eight hours? I mean, there was a whole talk about, <laughs> so it was definitely about the customer's always right and trying to be people pleasing. And it wasn't really about deep learning. It was, was can you get people to follow steps for eight hours so I probably had some bad training around that but I always found that useful just in terms of holding them in my hands and can you get anything worthwhile out of this as a teacher well it illustrates I think another point too is that it is one data point and to what you were just talking about as far as teaching computer classes a lot of it was driven around how much people liked you and the I haven't heard this term in a while, but entertainment, right? Yeah. So making it a fun experience. <laughs> I've never experience. heard that term. Never heard that term? Edutainment, yes. But. Oh, entertainment, yes. Uh, where it was a fun, <laughs> where it was a fun experience. I like the instructor, yes. but doesn't necessarily correlate with how much better I am. For example, in that case, at Microsoft Word. So, it's, and and now I'm laughing because I'm holding um, about six pages of notes. <laughs> I, I, was, I was wondering how you were going to navigate. Half now, but this is going to be interesting as we go. <laughs> Since they're now torn apart. <laughs> so let's get to some of the, um, thank you for sharing that, by the way, of like yeah. how you process that. So let's get to some of the, just the logistics of what are the courses that you taught this past semester? So the ones that I'm mostly going to be talking about, I taught two sections of an undergraduate consumer behavior class. So this is an elective for our business majors, whether they're business majors or marketing majors. Yeah. Consumer behavior. And then I also taught a section of a leadership and technology class for another institution in in their doctoral program. 
So two very different kinds of students. Oh, <laughs> probably couldn't be more different. <laughs> in fact, I, if if there are more different students, I have not encountered them yet. Yeah. Uh, so you made the distinction earlier between quantitative and qualitative, and and I think most people probably appreciate this who are listening to the show. But just for for those who this may be new language for the quantitative is the numbers pieces, right? The ratings that you get of you know on a scale of one to five, those kinds of things. The qualitative is the written responses, and most evaluations I've seen at most institutions have some combination of both. So first of all, from a quantitative standpoint, what are some of the trends that you noticed? Well, in terms of the way that these different institutions evaluate things, I just want to comment that that if any of you listening are ever in a position to have an influence on the questions that are asked, my goodness, the more is not the merrier here. <laughs> and I find so much less value in the institution where I teach in the doctoral program. There's just pages and pages and pages of quantitative and they just they don't they don't really provide good value so i'm thinking of it as just just myself how do i get the most out of these but i was going to just mention that it's hard to get a lot out of them if there's so many granular questions because they're sort of the you lose meaning in the data and then of course the students get exhausted so one of the things i'm curious about in the second institution where it's page after page and page of information so as a faculty member who then is getting all that data like how do you approach that then what do you do to make sense of like what am i going to pay attention to versus what do i gonna what am i going to set aside well in the i'm going to separate it because it was different so for the the main institution where i teach the consumer behavior class one of the things that i found helpful in this particular instance is that the quantitative scores tended to map pretty well to the qualitative feedback. And that's not always the case because because I'm not always able to see you know, where things happen. And I'll give you an example. In the consumer behavior class, and I've talked about this before on the show and have blogged about it, but I did sort of a version of choose your own adventure assessment. Mm-hmm. And they got to you know decide what, and I called them development opportunities, but they got to decide what kinds of things they wanted to do in order to earn their points. And then I also did a combination of being able to drop their lowest scores. And I'll tell you on the development opportunities, I wasn't as crisp as I might like to be. It was the first time I was trying it. And I had I had an Evernote note where I had linked to it in the learning management system to this Evernote note. And it had development opportunity one and then the choices of four or five choices they could do. Development opportunity two, four or five choices, three, four, et cetera. And then it just, it got, I didn't fill out all of five of them as the semester started because I wasn't, didn't have my act together enough when the semester started. So sometimes I would be kind of behind. And then since people could drop their lowest score, not everybody was going to do four and five. So it just got to be like, it wasn't terrible, but a couple of the neutral scores instead of the strongly agree were on things like. Uh, it had to do with being organized, you know, that kind mm. of thing, or assignments were clearly described. I and mean, that was like, sure. like, again, still high scores, but I'd love it to be perfect. Cause that's something that I should be able to do is get a perfect score on that. I describe the assignments. Well, yeah. <laughs> so there was a couple of times where I was like, that was kind of nice where it's like, okay. And, and you know what else, Dave, is that if I were to go back and do it again, I would still take the risk to not have everything as completely organized as I might normally for what it offered in terms of 
what it gave them more agency and it comes up in the qualitative rankings and in some of the other quantitative rankings too of of that the assignments were really helpful they were returned in a reasonable amount of time that I was available for help outside class, like all the things like that. I was like, yeah, good. I mean, it's great that those things were there. Yeah. So if I may um, perhaps coach you for a second, the in one of the concepts that's really popular in the software world right now and, and entrepreneurs is minimum viable product mm-hmm. and Eric, Eric, <laughs> Eric Reese's book. Yep. And oh, I forget. I'm What's the name of the book? Lean Lean Startup. Lean Startup. Yes, yeah. thank you. And so I think this concept's actually really helpful because I think about it like through the lens of like what James Lang teaches and, and his book, Small Teaching, of it, like st- starting to do something different and pushing yourself. In fact, you and I were talking about this around leadership earlier today of the importance of feeling uncomfortable yeah. in pushing yourself forward. And so it almost would be, it would almost be like if the scores turned out perfectly, it's like you hadn't pushed yourself to try something new. Mm. And so it's if I can offer this, like good for you that you tried something new and yeah, it didn't go perfectly, but it would have been weird if it had gone perfectly. Yeah. And instead you tried something new, you learned a bunch, you found a few things that didn't work. And then that's the next iteration of how do I take this from being a minimum viable product to now a better product the next time and a better product the next time. And, you know, the continuous improvement that you've talked about and so many guests have talked about on every episode of of how to do that for each iteration of a class. I'm so glad that you brought that up and I'll be putting the book in the show notes because people might be interested in learning more about that book. I haven't actually read it myself, but a number of people have referenced it and I certainly read articles about it and that kind of thing. It's changed my entire thinking on how I approach business and projects. And I think there's a lot for faculty in that book, even though it's not written, it's not a book for faculty. There's so much there, just just that concept of thinking about small iterations versus trying to nail something the first time out. The other thing I was going to mention about the other institutions, so this would be the doctoral students in the quantitative feedback. It was one of those classic, a smaller class, I think 12 or 13. And so I would have 12 strongly agrees and one neutral, 12 strongly agrees and one neutral, 12 strongly agrees and one neutral. And that was, I mean, with 12 people, can I admit that I can't help but think about who that one person might be and pretty sure I probably know who it was. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, no. that's a really hard demon to, I don't know how I could ever get that out of my own head. And yet what was really cool that I thought, yes, was 13 instructor was respectful of the students. Mm. 13 showed enthusiasm and interest 13 showed can oh provided extra assistance if asked for so it was kind of nice where you're like yep 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 and this was the institution that asked nine million questions <laughs> so i'm like you know eight million nine hundred ninety nine thousand of like everyone so strongly agree and one person neutral 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 but then when it got to like the things that are just core to us treating other people with respect and us you know showing up if you will for the work that kind of thing like i thought that's pretty cool that I could overcome the person's concerns about my teaching or what have you. That felt like, all right, well, all right. then. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that is cool. Yeah. So getting beyond just the quantitative numbers, uh, qualitative, what are some of the themes you found maybe first on the positive themes? There's just some really nice feedback. I try to, to not just brush by these quickly because we need these. We need these to nourish our soul. When you do the hard work that we do, we got to sort of be like a sponge and soak some of these extra 
kind, edifying words up because we're also going to hear some not kind and, and some discouraging words that will make us feel like we're not having the impact that we want to have. So it was just nice. I, I got, you know, she's one of the best teachers. Dr. B is the best. So that, that, I mean, it's nice to see that. Loved everything about this class. I, those were cool, cool words to read. You've been doing this for a while now, and you're the best teacher I know. And I think as a parent to anyone who's listened to the show for a while, you're very talented at what you do from a teaching standpoint. What are the what are the themes you pretty consistently hear in your evaluations that you're really good at as a teacher? Being energized, engaging students, caring for them, showing that I care. Mm. All right. Now the other side. So what are some of the constructive criticism, feedback, maybe even things that were harder to read or hurtful that you heard in the most recent evaluations? I wanted to talk about this today and I will, I want to start just by saying it's hard and that I had done this deep dive and have been, I think I did that maybe three or four weeks prior to us having this conversation. And some of the stuff just has been walking around with me. And then as I was preparing for the episode yesterday, I did sort of a second deep dive, which I don't normally do. And it was the weirdest thing because I have been carrying something around that isn't in the evaluations. Mm, How so? This is like, you know, they do those studies on how terrible we are as police witnesses because it's so easy to have something be suggested and then for us to accept that as what really happened. And, you know, I know all of this oh, from, yeah, the, from the, watching crime shows on television. So it must be true because that's my, that's my body of research. The classic uh, four people, <laughs> four people see an accident. There's four different versions yes. of the story. Yeah. So I need to tell a very personal story and then I will explain why I am telling this personal story because it involves why I carried something around these last three weeks that simply I cannot find in the evaluations that I thought was there. Hmm. And this involves you, and I asked permission for me to tell this story before we started oh, recording. Oh, this, this is where this comes up, huh? <laughs> so when I was in my mid to late 20s, I had my biggest heartbreak of my life. And of course, now I couldn't be happier about this horrible heartbreak because if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be married to you. I would be married to someone else. So thank goodness, because you're a really great husband. So we'll start with that. But at the time, I didn't know you. I didn't know you were coming along. So this was hard. So I was starting to be on my healing process and totally never see this person anymore, like in a whole different part of my life. And someone says like, oh, hey, do you ever talk to him anymore? No, no, I don't. Like, why would I I still talk to him? Oh, yeah, I ran into him. Yeah, he he said he broke up with you because you were too nice. There was something just so raw about that that brought up all these feelings of like, first of all, how horrible is that that I never got any kind of explanation, but now that's like what we're going to ascribe it to. But then that this person was telling other people, I was just ashamed. I just went through all this stuff. So all of this to say... I have a trigger about being too nice. That is still something that makes me feel shame when it really shouldn't. And I know that it shouldn't, but that's, that's not great. So I, I thought three weeks ago when I had read this, that somewhere in the evaluations, it had said she's too nice as one of the criticisms of my teaching. Oh. And I've been like, oh, okay, <laughs> 
I'm going to have to tell this story on the episode and, you know, I get Dave's permission, make sure he's okay. You know, like this whole thing, like I read it and I read it and I read it and I read it and I read it yesterday. It's not in there. It's not even there. It's not there. Isn't that weird? I would have told you it's there and I still, I'm mean, kept doing search and the text search wasn't always working, but like in some cases <laughs> I couldn't find it anywhere. There is a comment about wishing I was stricter. Hmm. She should be more strict. Which is funny to me because when I think about you in the context of what I know about the institutions you teach at and your colleagues, you're one of the stricter people I know Mm -hmm. as far as handling things and being very caring of students, but also at the same time being very purposeful about evaluation standards and all that and, and being willing to engage in difficult situations. So that's a that's an interesting, I mean, that it comes up at all is interesting to me. Yeah. And then there was also thinking that the class was too sheltered or something like that. So it was kind of an interesting, interesting set of comments. But that was a long story. But I should probably move on to some of the other things that showed up as confusing, hurtful, or hard ones to process. Oh my gosh, this next one. I'll read it word for word. The only thing that disappointed me is that for the poster sessions, you didn't walk around and look at everyone's posters. I know we all spent money on materials and put time into them and would have liked you to at least see it in person. (sighs) This one's so hard. So I had combined both of the sections of the classes together. Mm Mm-hmm. And we put on an awesome event. We had, I think, almost 100 people there. And there were alumni coming and there were business professionals coming. We did a Facebook Live thing that I blogged about mm-hmm. that like went crazy bad. And <laughs> to post about all my Facebook Live failures. Because it, was, it, was, it was 90 degree <laughs> angle the wrong way. Yeah, but I just, I saw this and I was so sad. I was so sad because I thought I watched the whole video. And I was so proud of all of you. I smiled from ear to ear as I watched every single clip of that video on on its side. (laughs) 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 And I did it in private. Mm. And that they wouldn't have known that I would have put that much effort into celebrating their learning made me so sad. Mm. So sad. And then especially talking about them spending money. And I know some of our students just don't have a lot of money and that they wouldn't have known that I treasured that. Mm. We had a student who's a professional photographer. She took these amazing pictures and I just smiled ear to ear at just celebrating their learning. But I wasn't purposeful enough about getting to every single booth. I don't even know if that would have been possible because there were so many of them and the event wasn't really that long. So I just have to think about this for next time of mm. I never want to read that on a comment again. Yeah. You know, there's a um I'm not saying this to try to make you feel better <laughs> necessarily, but there's, there's an aspect of this. I mean, I think about parenting and marriage, the things you and I think about a lot of our relationships with each other and with our kids and like there's times that both of us do things that we think a lot about and really intentional about it and the other person never notices or, or just seemingly never notices. And um, like, that's just part of the human experience, you know? And yeah. it's really, it really sucks when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple of comments for people that just two out of, I think 
40, mm-hmm. 50 evaluations, something like that. I hate group projects. I did the majority of it myself. That one I don't think very much about because they had a choice. <laughs> Those poster sessions that I just mentioned, they could work as groups of two, but they also could do it by themselves. And some people did. So I'm like, hey, that's all on you. <laughs> like I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm not taking that one on myself. If you chose to work as a group and you did the work yourself, then like I, yeah. Anyway, and then I guess the, I guess the other one is that sometimes in teaching doctoral students, the level of perfectionism is at uh, new heights that I'm not accustomed <laughs> to dealing with. Generally speaking, with undergrads, if you have people that are very achievement oriented, like I am, I care a lot about my grades. I know you do too, Dave that generally speaking, that starts to happen when they get below an A because, you know, that affects the GPA. So if it's an A minus, then like there's lots of tension there. But there's sometimes comments that are confusing to me from the doctoral students because if they didn't get a perfect score. And I'm always thinking, but but see, you still got an A on the assignment and you still have an A in the class. Like, and so that's hard for me to just wrap my hand head around sort of the best ways to address that. So there was a comment. My low scores were due to the syllabus and assignment expectations needing to be updated on Blackboard. I feel that Dr. B explained the changes well, but when we went to work on our own, we all heard different information through our discussions. We confused each other. Mm-hmm. And this is something I won't spend too much time on, but I had, there was like a setting inside blackboard where i thought i changed the deadlines for things but then there was another place you had to change them i'm spoiled by canvas because you just change it in one place and it changes everywhere else but there was you know the problem there and i know out of my own reflection right when you have problems like that you got to document it don't wait to get the evaluations i already knew this was an issue but document oh remember when you change the dates you got to change it here and you got to change it over here so that you don't forget next time so that one wasn't that surprising but it is a little weird like but that's just hard that's almost a harder one for me to spend some time thinking about and I think just going and finding other people that more regularly teach doctoral students can be helpful and also talking to other people that teach within that specific program because programs create their own cultures and since I'm the third or the fourth class that they have they've already had a lot of cultural learning and norms established that I need to be aware of to be more effective in my teaching I'm thinking about this in context of what you were talking about earlier, as far as the, you know, trying something new and making some mistakes and not going perfectly. Our higher education system, at least here in Western culture, has trained a lot of us who are high achievers of like, A is good, and anything else is you you messed up if you got a B or a C. Or in this case, 100% is good. Or 100% is good, or an A minus, <laughs> like whatever it is. And yeah. so... And that is not at all how the world works yeah. in any capacity, right? I mean, anything you're applying for a job or even in higher education or starting a business, it is a lot of 40% days. There's a 70% day. There's a 60% day. You have a 90% day occasionally. It is learning and being challenged along the way. And I, I, I almost, I mean, this is an episode about rethinking the entire evaluation system of, the, of, of higher education, of course, but I think it's, it's, to the extent that we can find a way as educators to make space in our classrooms and our discussions for a 87% day or a 73% day, and that to not be a horrible thing, that, yeah, there's a GPA correlated with that, but that there's also real learning that happens. And I, I know that's hard. I've, I've, I've navigated that myself. Um, but I, I just, I put that out there as something for us all to think about because 
that is the world that the students are going into. All of the students we all have had the privilege to work with. I need to get Ken Bauer back on the show because he recently has been blogging about and tweeting about just doing away with all of that. It's just you did it or you didn't. We talked before about specs, specifications, grading too. But yeah, there's a lot to think about here for sure. You recently read Stephen Brookfield's on becoming a critically reflective teacher. What have been some of your reflections as you've reviewed the evaluations this time around in the context of his work? One of the things that really came out was he has a critical incident survey and he administers these regularly at least once a week in all of his classes. And so one of the things that comes out is that for a couple of things, it's not major, but for a couple of things, I would have known about these things. Oh my gosh, I just realized there was a big one that I didn't mention. A big one. <laughs> Another failure was it was it was couched in a compliment. So it was like, I love this class. It was awesome. But when you play music, when we're doing quizzes, my brain gets fuzzy. And I don't play music when they're doing quizzes, but they were referring to Quizlet. The flashcard app has a game that is awesome. And I've blogged about that. I'll post a link in the show notes, but it's incredible. And I realized that for some silly reason, I hadn't really thought about like I, music, of course, that's cognitive load. Mm-hmm. And if you have 100% musical intelligence, like I do <laughs> from the Gardner intelligence survey, <laughs> like it's going to, all you're going to be thinking about is the magnificence of the music you're hearing and the lyrics. And it's going to take you on all these memories and places that you've been. So like, of course, I would never play music while students were taking a test or if there was some kind of real focus that they needed to do. But in this case, I sort of lost the comprehension of that because I thought, oh, we're playing a game. Oh, So it's a, a game that you play, Quizlet Live. You play it using the flashcards. And the students, by the way, loved, loved, loved it. It was a huge hit. And even this student clearly had a good experience in the class. But I'm like, whoops, don't play music while you're playing Quizlet Live. Just because so you're having fun doesn't mean you need to play fun music. The music isn't part of the game. The music was something you added in. Got it. Got yeah, it. I just thought like, oh, fun background noise. Yeah, I'm not going to oh. do that again. Oh. So um, at any rate, that particular piece of feedback, I was also you know disappointed to hear that because I was like, oh, man, I should know better than that. Lesson learned. But I should have learned that earlier in the semester when we first started experimenting with the tool, because had I asked using his critical and he has this on his website, you don't necessarily have to buy the critically reflective teacher in order to have access to it. It's on stephenbrookfield.com, which I'll link to Mm -hmm. on the show notes, but you can download it and just regularly administer, you know, what's happening in the classroom, what is contributing to people's learning. And this is similar to Gardner Campbell talks about an APGAR, which APGAR is a medical term for measuring babies when they're born. You get an APGAR score. One to to 10 or something like that. Yeah. Like, and then if it's too low, that that's a, it was invented by a nurse and their, you know, their name was Apgar. Oh, didn't <laughs> didn't make the connection. I think I, think. I was like sure Apgar stood for something. No, I, I think you're Pretty right. Sure I think you're name, right. Yeah. yeah. So at any rate, that would have been another tool that I'll link to in the show notes that we could use to gauge, you know, how things are going, so you don't have to wait until the evaluations come out. And then the other thing that was sort of interesting for me to reflect on a little bit. He's such a brilliant writer, and I love his transparency and his rawness, and he inspires me in that way to be vulnerable as I'm talking with you today about these, you know, very, very personal experiences have reflected on the work, the mission, the reason I, you know, one of the reasons why I'm on this planet is to teach. And so he talks about, 
He has kind of visceral reactions to people who have won teaching awards and teachers who are considered more charismatic and because he doesn't consider himself that way, although I think he's very charismatic. But he talks about, you know, that we don't want to be aiming for that kind of stuff because then we become sort of too perfectionistic. We become too focused on on people pleasing, being liked, you know, entertainment, that kind of thing. And that um, sometimes we've all experienced this, um, that when you're asking students to do that deeper learning, you'll have the resistance and they're not necessarily going to be happy with you every day of the class, you know, and exhilarated by your teaching, that kind of thing. And so it was sort of interesting for me to think about, yeah, I have won some pretty big teaching awards and I have I have struggled at times with people pleasing, you know, that just having that be hard, like, oh, I feel like I can't reach this person. And that's hard for me when I feel like I can't. And so I guess, how do I translate him? Because he doesn't see himself that way with me of like, oh, I think I might be one of those teachers that you're describing that you don't really seem to care too much for. I mean, I don't, I'm not I'm not phrasing it very well. I should have probably highlighted a few quotes of, of him actually in his own words. But I think I just when I think about my own role as a teacher, but also as someone who coaches faculty, I I just wanted to reflect on people that really do get bad evaluations. Because clearly I had had some emotion in this episode, which has never happened before on teaching in higher ed. Clearly, this is hard work. But my gosh, Dave, what about the people that really get bad evaluations? It's not just one comment. It's the whole thing has gone haywire with the qualitative and the quantitative, and it's hard to get stuff out. So I just wanted to say, if that's you, that I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I'm so glad that you're trying to do things to enhance your teaching and that you really can get better at this stuff. This is this is not something that's unattainable and, and that you're always going to be learning. You'll never feel like you're done, but that I'm wishing you the best, I guess, the, the next time and hoping that this show provides some things for you for encouragement, some things for you, some practical things that you can do. And I'm just so glad that we're all together in this community. And that leads us to the recommendations portion of our episode. My recommendation is quick and easy. Uh-huh. Keep an encouragement file for yourself of really nice things that cards that students give you or words that they've written and both a physical if they give you a physical card but also have it digitally so you can incorporate it into your teaching portfolio if you need to do that but I'll tell you what that is like medicine to the soul Mm. I have a email folder for that I have a I think it's titled love and it's just uh it's not just love notes from you (laughs) well there's some of those in there but it's it's anytime I get a really nice email that's about me. I put it in there and I, I use that once in a while. If I'm having one of those days, I'll go through and I'll just look through a few of them. And yeah, it really does. It really does help. So my recommendation is a concept that is, I think a lot of people have probably heard of and it relates right to our topic today of just a very, what I found to be very simple, but also very powerful way to engage evaluations during a course during the semester. It's just it's called stop, start, continue. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it's there's a lot of ways you could do this. The way I have done it is I'll usually get about 40% through a course. Um, and I've, I tend to, when I've taught adjunct, it's tend to be more accelerated classes where there's only five class meetings. So I would often do this either at the, like the end of the second class meeting or maybe the beginning of the third class meeting. So not quite halfway, but enough time that there's, you know, I can still tweak and change things. And so the, what we do is spend you know, maybe 10 minutes in the class of and I'll ask the students for me. We'll put it up on the board, and I'll make three columns of uh, what is something you see me doing that you'd like to see me stop doing. 
What's something that you don't see me doing that you'd like me to start doing that will help you to get more out of this class? And then finally, what do you see me doing that you want me to keep doing? Continue. You know, we'll spend a few minutes and I'll, I'll ask everyone, you know, just, and I've done it different ways. I've done times where I've left the room and I've let students put things up on the board. I've also done it where I've been there and, you know, I write the things that they say. And I haven't, for me, at least I haven't found a big difference between those. So I've tended to just stay in the room and have that conversation with them versus having them put it up on the board and, and coming back to it. And then we talk about it. And so we, and what I find is, you know, there's always someone who puts up something silly like, uh, you know, I'd like you to stop or uh, not have us do this next project <laughs> or next assignment or whatever. Then once you get through a few of those, and then there's always something I found that comes out of that that's a a really helpful comment in some way. And so when they're all up on the board, we spend a few minutes just kind of listing them up, and I attempt not to comment on them while people are putting them up. So we'll talk about stop and start. And, and so we'll just list them up. And then what I'll do is I'll go back and we'll spend a few minutes and I'll, I'll address each one. And I attempt to address each one as a in one of three ways. Either I'll say, that's really valid, especially if it's a stop or a start. Um, I will do that and I'll make a commitment to do that. And of course, the key is you have to really then do it because if you don't, it's worse than if you hadn't, it, than if you had not done this at all, because then you're not you're not looking like someone who's being responsive to feedback. And you're not going to hear it again from people. The second category of things is, that's interesting. Let me think about that. And then the third category is, and this is really important too, um, is that's not something I'm going to change and here's why. And so that way there's some explanation as to, yes, I found this to be you know a comment that's uh, helpful, but here's, here's why I have either not made that choice to do that in this class or I'm not going to take that advice. So that way it acknowledges the feedback that's given if you plan not to do anything with it. Because you don't want to leave something up there, not comment on it, and then people three weeks later saying like, oh, we told you to do this and you didn't do it. Because if you're not going to do it, just be honest why you're not going to do it. And I found that to be really helpful. And sometimes nothing comes up that's really substantial within that interaction. But inevitably a week later, someone will make a suggestion in class. You've set the standard now in the classroom where I'm willing to have a conversation about how I'm doing as an instructor outside of just the sheet you're going to fill out uh, after you don't see me anymore. Because then I can do something with that. And I always aim to find at least one or two things I can tweak immediately from that conversation. So students realize that I'm I'm learning too, and I'm willing to, to grow and change and adapt. Thanks so much for being on today's show, Dave, and for this advice and for all your coaching and good questions. And Hey, thanks for being on your own show. Hey. It's, I make a great guest. You do make a fabulous guest. I come very prepared with samples and you, you should think about theme music. You should think about hosting the show. I really should. How about next week? Uh, it sounds good. So if you uh, found today's conversation helpful, I hope you'll go on the teachinginhighered.com website because you can sign up to receive in your inbox each week a article that Bonnie writes as well as the show notes with all of the resources that we mention each week. You can go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, is it? teachinghire.com slash subscribe. Plus you get a very helpful PDF guide with lots of educational tools that Bonnie put together a while back. Lots of uh, good stuff there. And we'll see you in a week, right? Yeah. See you next time. If you want to consider joining the Slack channel, that's there at teachinginhighered.com slash Slack too. So lots of ways to get engaged. Thanks so much for listening. That's a fun channel.